Okay, let's get into it. We're in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Some interesting thoughts that come out of this whole setting. Okay, if you were with us last week, here's how far we've gone along. We start, we talked about the triumphal entry. Jesus is marching into Jerusalem. We know all about what happens. And we talked at length about all the different details, how on Friday he shows up in the region, but he spends Sabbath day in Bethany. Mary, the brother, the sister of Lazarus, sister of Martha, she uh, anoints him with oil. Sunday morning he leaves Bethany. Bethany goes into Jerusalem on the way. He sends the men ahead. They get the colt for him to ride. The crowds are cheering as he approaches Jerusalem. They're yelling and they're saying, Hosanna, save us now. They mention he is the king. They talk about him being the son of David. They lay their, their clothing, palm branches on the ground. But the Pharisees are not enthusiastic. They tell Jesus, tell the people to be quiet. He says, if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks will ring out. And Jesus is somber himself. While the ch- crowds are cheering, he breaks into weeping because he knows that this is kind of phony right now. This isn't where it's going to be. Within a few days, they're going to reject him. It's going to result in their devastation, their destruction. And so as you approach the end of the parade, he enters into Jerusalem, goes straight to the temple. He views the temple for a while. Then he leaves and he goes back to Bethany, which is just across the hillside. He goes there for the night. He'll return on Monday morning. And so what we concluded, we didn't finish this out last week. We concluded that Jesus, with his deity, was displayed. Especially, we looked at one section last week when he talks about go get the animals. Here's what they're going to say to you. Tell them the master. And then when the, he's all done with the animals, what does Matthew and Mark say? He will send them back to you. And so his control, his knowledge, his, his different characteristic traits shows that he is God. He knows the future in all minor and major details. He knew all about something so minor as the animal, where it would be, what house, what they were going to say and ask. And he knows the big things. He knows about Israel's future destruction. So he knows little details. He knows big details. Let's move on. Jesus is in total control at all times of himself in the events around, I think, Scott, were you the one that brought this up that you said during this, this you know, diatribe of the life of Christ, the one thing that keeps on coming back and repeating itself is the control of Jesus Christ. Just how he kept control of himself and he controlled everything that was going on. Amazing. He works to fulfill what, has, what he has predicted several times in this account as it is written. And so even the animals, even the parade, even what the cheering is, it's as it was predicted. Jesus is not only in control of small details, but also fulfilling prophecy. His words, therefore, will not fall short or fail in any detail. If all the prophecies made about his first coming are true, then the prophecies prophecies about his second coming must also be true. And so we know that that's going to be happening. Jesus accepts public praise and adoration at the appropriate times. Now we mentioned, we talked about this last week, some of you weren't here, that at the time of Palm Sunday, he accepts the acclamations of the crowd that he is king. But just a few months before that, he refused their acclamations when they wanted to make him king after he fed the 5,000 by the sea. He, uh, they wanted to make him king. He says, nope. He goes up in the mountain, sends his disciples away after he had fed them, and they were all cheering about it. In that, at that moment, it wasn't time. But when it's the appropriate time, he accepts, accepts the acclamation and the praise of the people. I think that's, for us, that's true too. And we have to recognize, recognize the fact that he expects us to be praising him and acclaiming him. Jesus is moved emotionally by the response of the people. So the rejection that he knows they're going to have, it breaks him into tears, breaks him down 
where he is sobbing, he is weeping in response to the, the, the people. Though he knows what the future holds, that even brings him sorrow when he knows that it's going to hurt the peoples. Let's make this comment with that. He's weeping over Jerusalem, and let's correct what some people have said in the past. Jesus does not take personal delight in the deserved destruction of people. Okay, the idea that is God glad and excited to cast the sinners into hell. Is he righteous in sending them to hell? That's true. Okay, and yet when he knows that somebody is going to be destroyed because of their rejection of him, what does he do at this moment? He's weeping, he's crying. Now, let, let's flip the coin here, okay? The Pharisees at this time, they were teaching God delights in the destruction of sinners. Remember? Yes? No? We talked about that, especially with what parable does he point out to challenge that. He gave a parable. We talked about it. It just happened. We talked about it a few weeks ago, and it probably happened a few weeks ago in his ministry prior to this moment where he's marching into Jerusalem. But they were teaching God delights in destroying sinners. He, he enjoys, you know, meeting out that punishment. Do you remember what parable he spoke to show that it's not true? It's in the Gospel of Luke. Has to do with lost things. The coin. The lost sheep. Okay, all those that he looks for the lost and he rejoices in the lost being found. And they said, the Pharisees were teaching, no, no, he doesn't care about sinners. He doesn't delight in them. He delights in their destruction. He says, no, no, no. He delights in the lost one's re repentance. That's where the great delight is. And uh, then he even talked about hell right after that. So Jesus is counteracting and he is living out, contrary to what the Pharisees were teaching. So we move into the cleansing of the temple. There are several passages. We're going to just combine, look at Mark chapter 11. So let's start there. In Mark chapter 11, this is the account where he has done the presentation, the first few verses. And and it says in verse 11, He entered into Jerusalem, into the temple. When he had looked around about upon all the things, now it was evening tide was come. He went back out to Bethany with the twelve, and that's the end of Sunday. Monday morning, verse 12. On the morrow, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree from afar off that had leaves, he came, if happily he might find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of the figs was not yet. He answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of you hereafter forever. His disciples heard it. No more, no more comment at this point. They come to Jerusalem. Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold the doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. He taught, saying unto them, It is, is it not written, My father, my house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. The scribes, the chief priests, heard it. They sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. When evening was come, he went out of the city. And in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots, and Peter recalling to remembrance, the uh, say, it says to him, Master, behold the fig tree, which the curse is withered away. Let's stop there. Okay. Here's what you've got. This is the second time he's going to cleanse the temple. The first time, only John records. It's in the beginning of his ministry. It's in John chapter 2. So Jesus, uh, according to John, only did it once. 
According to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record the second one that happens at this moment, the Monday of his Passion Week. So the accounts, they don't, they don't uh, match perfectly because they're giving, the accounts between John and the other Gospels, because they're giving different occasions, different times. This was done on the Monday, we already mentioned. The cheering crowds, all of a sudden we don't see or hear of the cheering crowds when he comes back. Why is that? Why do you think the crowds have kind of dissipated? The people are still there, but what might they be doing Monday morning? They're preparing for what's coming up. Passover. Okay, there's got to... What kind of things do you have to prepare for at Passover? Got to get the meal taken care of. If you're from an out of town, out of town you have to arrange where and you're gonna, where you're going to get for this meal. You've got to arrange the animal. It means you have to go out, pick the animal, get the sacrifice prepared. You've got a lot of things to be doing. So why would, the, why would the temple be so busy on Monday when actually the Passover is going to kick off come Thursday? Why are there people at the, at the temple now? They're getting ready for the Passover. Okay, let me, let me rephrase this. Okay, is Christmas the busy day in the stores? No. Christmas Eve day. Yes. For some of us, yes. Okay, when is Christmas the busy time of the year? Uh, when, is, when is shopping the busy days? The, after Thanksgiving, typically. Why? Why do people go shopping on Black Friday and not wait until December 24th, which seems perfectly sensible in my mind to go on December 24th? The sales... Why do some of you do it? Why do you start shopping early? To get it over with? Okay, yeah. And you're, what are you trying to beat? The crowds. You want to get good prices, you're beating the crowds. Do you think it's changed any way over the period of time? Do you, don't you think people thought the same thing back then? If I'm here and I've got to get ready for the big day, Thursday and Friday, the big day is because the Galileans were focused on one day, they, they had a system set up. We'll talk about when we get into it. They had it set up that not everybody did the sacrificing on the same day. They adjusted it because they knew the out-of-towners would be there. So they adjusted for the Galileans and out-of-towners to sacrifice before the in-towners. And the reason being they were supposed to sacrifice typically on the Friday. But if we're going to have any group... The people in charge, if we're going to have any group switch days, we're going to have the out-of-towners so we can stay on the exact day. And so because the numbers, they had to accommodate this. So they moved and they spread the day of sacrifice to two days. And by spreading it two days, that meant, okay, people have to get ready even earlier. So that meant Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday were busy days in the temple, people preparing before the sacrifices happened. And so it's very similar to our type of holidays. There's adjustments, things that happen. The crowds are very likely, we don't know, the Bible doesn't say, but they're getting ready. It just makes sense. They're getting ready. So they've shifted from the celebration. And I'm sure some, when they saw Jesus, were excited. But they're shifting to getting ready for the Passover. Now, part of this account, it records what I read about that fig tree. Jesus is getting up. And this is typical Jewish-Palestinian custom. They didn't normally eat like we in American farming. Any of you farm, work on farms when you were young or farmers? I remember growing up, what did they do? We got up early, they would do some of the chores, then they'd come in and eat a big breakfast, okay? And then go back out, okay? In Bible days, it wasn't quite that same thing. Typically in the Palestinian, they didn't eat until mid-morning. 
And so they had a mid-morning meal. So you get up, you're going about doing your business. You come mid-morning. By this time, Jesus is already moving. He's in, tra- he's in the traffic headed towards Jerusalem. And he's hungry. So they see this fig tree and it has the leaves. The reason that it points out in, in the passage that seems to be a contradiction, but it's not. Where it says, he sees the leaves, he looks for the fruit, and he doesn't find it. Verse 13, for the time of figs was not at hand. And people read that and say, well, why is he looking for fruit when it's not the time of the figs? It's because the leaves. The fig trees operated this way. Is the fig tree, the leaves would show up after the fruit has started. So, this, and that would be the, that would be like the apples early in the season. And it got, by that point, by the time the figs, um, uh, by the time the leaves were starting to show up, they were already matured. The figs were already matured enough. They could be eaten, but they'd be like a sour apple. They would still mature even beyond the leaves. But if you saw leaves on the tree, you would think there's already the beginning of the fruit and there is something that is edible. may not be the best, but at least it's edible. When Jesus comes to this tree, even though there's leaves, there is absolutely no fruit on that on that tree. Not even what they called the, the buds or the immature fig, which was called pagans. They weren't even there. So Jesus curses the tree and then the, the account says they move on. And it's because okay, there weren't any indication of the figs. Even though it wasn't ripe season, there should have been some based on the leaves showed up. And so Jesus moves on. Now um, what he does is he curses the tree. Stop for just a second. Why does he bother cursing the tree? I think there's some reasons that aren't real. I think the number one reason is he's not because he's hangry. Okay? That he's, you know, some of us, we get hangry. You know, my wife, you, you see those Snicker commercials? I think it's Snickers. Yeah, eat a Snickers, you're not yourself. Okay. My wife says to me, you got to eat. Why, how do you, what do you mean I got to eat? She's not, she'll say, because you're acting hangry. She doesn't use that term, but that happens, right? Yes. But it happens very rarely. Okay. Okay. Nod your head. (laughs) So is Jesus responding just because he's hangry? No, no, no. No, was he hungry? Was he hungry? Okay, but is he, does, does Jesus become moody like we become moody? Tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. Okay, so he did this as, a, the, the lesson is obvious because when you put the whole story, he's using it as a teachable moment. Okay, did he know there was going to be figs there or did he lose track of, oh, I lost my godhood, I couldn't figure out the lead. No, so he knew, but he's going through the motions and part of the motions is it's a teachable moment. I mean, haven't you ever done that with your kids? You, you, you're, you're in total control, but you're going to carry through a scenario because you're, it's a teachable moment. Okay? And so Jesus is using that. What's interesting is look at Mark 11. Look at the structure of the passage. Okay? Now Mark 11 does this where he starts with the fig tree. Then he goes the next paragraph. He goes into the cleansing of the temple and Jesus comments. And then right after the cleansing of the temple, what does Mark include? He goes back to the fig tree again. So he sandwiches the, the meat of the story, that is the cleansing of the temple. He sandwiches it with two pieces of bread that deal with the fig tree. Because they are related to, they're tied to, they're part of the entire sandwich of what's happening with the cleansing of the temple. Which makes perfect sense. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem looking for fruit in the lives of the people there. What does he find in the worship center? Does he find fruit of worship or does he find something different?
Does he find something sour in between the sandwich? Yeah, yeah, it's filled with coconut. It is terrible stuff, okay, that he finds at the temple. And so he sandwiches, Mark 11 is laying this out to sandwich the account to give some lessons that he's going to teach. And so that's very important. It's tied, the the barren fig tree is tied to the story and to the actions of Israel. Okay, we'll come back to that and we'll, we'll highlight that as we move on. But Jesus is addressing this and he needs his disciples. Now, he's doing public ministry. Remember now, he, he's just spent the last year in private instruction with his disciples. The first, year and, uh, the first year and a half to, it would have been 24 months, was public ministry. Then remember, the last year, he's basically pulled in and he's done private teaching, though he's done some public ministry, most of it was private. Now he is back doing things publicly as he moved to Jerusalem. He did the Zacharias, he held the, uh, healed the ten lepers. Does he only focus on the public, or is he also doing private teaching? The answer is yes. He is doing some public teaching, but he's also doing private teaching. Especially his disciples need private instruction because they don't get what? Who he is. They don't understand it fully. They don't get the one thing he's been repeating to them. I am going to leave. And they don't get it. Okay, and they're just looking for the one, the positive, the benefit found in him bringing in or introducing a new kingdom. And so he's doing private as well as public uh, lessons. And so you're the disciples. Just think with me for this moment. Walk through this scenario. You're the disciples who have been walking with Jesus yesterday, a good day or bad day. Yesterday was Sunday. Good day. Good day, because what, what, what do you look back on that Sunday? What happened Sunday that would have been exciting to you? The crowds accepting Jesus, and they're all for Jesus, and they're calling him king, king, king. So what do the supporters of Jesus, how are they feeling Monday morning? Oh, they're, they're enthusiastic. Does the fig tree help them to get a reality check that there isn't real fruit in Jerusalem? It's going to. It's going to. So there's going to be private instruction. Remember now, he's walking with his disciples. This isn't big crowds. And so he's going to curse the tree, and he's going to talk about it later on. Let's go back to what happens. He curses the tree. They move on. The Bible says the disciples heard him. That's all it, it says about the fig tree. We move on from that story. We'll come back to it in a moment. They head into Jerusalem. When they head into Jerusalem, Jesus goes to the court, to the marketplace. He is going to go to what's called the court of the Gentiles. You know this. Many of you have seen this before. Okay, the temple in Bible days, this is a picture of what it was, Herod's temple at the time of Christ. What they had is different areas within the temple. These two areas that are, whoops, sorry, that are boxed in red, those two are what's called the court of the Gentiles. Okay, it was on both sides of the main sanctuary. So you had the court of the Gentiles, then the Jewish men could go a little bit deeper into the temple, and then even those who were the priests could go even deeper. So you had these regions that were wide open, and uh, you see that wall that's in the middle of the, of the right-hand one, and then you see that same wall that's kind of with a uh, break in it right below the box on the uh, left-hand side. That would be the wall of separation where only Jews could cross beyond that point. That's the wall that Gen- uh, Galatians 2 talks about, the wall of partition being broken down between the Jews and the Gentiles. So what you have here is there the temple. It's a big area, and um, before we cast too many stones, let's 
let's, uh, let's, let's think back in history. Why did they start this marketplace? It was done because they wanted to be helpful. Originally, it started with the idea that, okay, if you're coming and you're making sacrifice, let's pretend we're back in the temple days, okay? You're going to make sacrifice up here. We're going to do the sacrifice for you. You bring in an animal for sacrifice. You've come all that distance from up by Pine Grove, okay? You've come from that far and you've walked that distance, okay? I got to check out your animal. Is your animal a healthy animal? Is your animal, you know, uh, the best it can be? For the sacrifice, because we all know it's got to be the, 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 you know, the bestest of sacrifices that was supposed to be there. Plus, we know that you have to make, pay some temple tax. And according to the system that was started uh, years before this, that they were supposed to bring the pure animals. They were supposed to pay with the approved coinage. Okay, you've come from Pine Grove. Pine Grove has a different type of financial system. They aren't as civilized as us in Lebanon. Okay, so we have to change your coins. So you're using the approved coin, okay? And we have to check your animal. And, t- and, and seriously, animals coming a long distance may have suffered harm, injury. And so originally, when it started way before the beginning of uh, the New Testament, six, you know, well, let's put 28 AD, when this is happening. It started generations before that they did this to accommodate and to help the travelers. Does it make sense? That it would be helpful to the travelers? I mean, if you were coming with your family, do you want to be taking care of a couple lambs as well as your kids? Or once you get there, buy a lamb that's already certainly be approved. What would be easier? Buy one. Okay. And so to accommodate you, originally it started with the system. The priest put it together. We'll accommodate the travelers. We'll help them out. Seems reasonable, doesn't it? Seems like you're going to lend a hand to people. But over a period of time, okay, it became a little bit, you know, not so accommodating. And quite frankly, people who start these businesses to help out, they find out there's profit in it. And matter of fact, we could make a little bit more profit in this. But now by the time Josephus describes it, he's giving terms like this is the place of the sons of Annas who is the high priest, one of the high priests, that they called him, uh, he refers to me that he was his family, he was a great hoarder of money. And it comes to be called Annas' Bazaar. That he starts this system and he develops and his sons keep it going. And it, be- it became a, a monopoly. It became a really interesting spot by the time Jesus shows up that by the New Testament, they had this racket going. They developed it, okay? Not probably not everybody within the confines, but the vast majority. That basically said, hey, listen, if they're traveling, they're coming from a distance, and they are going to buy my animal, I will, oh, you know, you ever reach in your pocket and it says inspected by number seven? Okay? Okay, you have those things? Well, they had inspectors. And it came to a point that history gives us record that most people who traveled from afar, they would not get the stamp of approved by inspector number seven. Became very common that they would be rejected, their animals that they brought would be rejected, which would force those people who traveled a long distance, who brought their animal, they would have to do what? They would have to buy one. So it came to be the point that, well, why bother bringing an animal? It's going to be rejected anyway. So, by the way, if I have set up the system, you come to worship this morning, and I have the staff looking and checking out your animals, and you're going to have to buy one of ours. Well, not mine, but you're going to buy it from the people that I have hired to raise sheep. Okay? And I'm going to get a cut. They're going to get a cut. Okay? 
And uh, since only our herd is going to be approved, what can we do with our prices? Okay, it's a monopoly. So what do you do with the prices? It's called price gouging. Okay, and oh, by the way, you coming from Pine Grove, you have weird coins. We have the right coins. You're going to buy one of our coins to change, and you can only buy them from us because they have not been touched by Gentile hands. Okay, our coins that we're getting minted here, we're minting them and we're not letting the Romans touch them. So these are the pure, purest, purest of coins that you have to have. Okay, and uh, oh, by the way, to exchange the money, we need to charge you a little bit. Who's going to regulate this? Oh, wait, the government's going to regulate this. Who is in charge of the government? The very same people who own the bazaar. So I also do the government controls, plus I set the rates. Guess what with the rates? Whatever I set, the government approves. Okay. So it became a racket system that records indicate that people would bring them, and so it was happening. They were charging prices. You know what's interesting is Josephus talks about, he's the historian writing about some of the extra-biblical writing about some of the things happening. He says that they even charge exorbitant prices on the pigeons and the doves. Okay, the reason that's interesting that he records, they were considered what, per, what class of people's sacrifice? The poor man's sacrifice. And where do you get the pigeons and doves? You catch them where? Yeah, anywhere, right? I mean, if you, if you have people throwing crumbs down, you got pigeons. Okay, so they're a very common bird. They were charging, record says that they were charging for the ones that they approved several times higher than you would buy in the normal street outside the temple. And then you could even catch your own. And so it was a ripoff. It was the, the fees that they were charging for coins, we have that they were probably 125 to 13% just for the exchange rate, which is a pretty high fee. It's almost like credit card rates. Um, so it was, a, it was a very, very profitable, lucrative business for the priests. And, uh, you know, they would hire out this whole thing. So maybe that's what he says. You have made it a den of thieves is you've made it a den of hucksters. Maybe that's what Jesus is referring to. I think that and something else that we'll come to in a moment. So Jesus comes in and, um, oh, hey, I, I forgot to tell you this. There is something I didn't know before. But in research recently, I found this out. That there also is, remember he says you are buying and selling. Okay, and he says it to the hucksters. He says, you are buying and selling. Well, what are they buying? I didn't realize this. That some of the people who didn't have funds, which people some, back in those days, they would barter. They would trade more than they would coins. They could bring their cattle, and it became a marketplace for selling off your cattle, your lambs. You could bring them to, if you, were, if you were nearby, bring your cattle down, and you could sell them to the people who were giving the approved animals. So you could two to one. I'll give you two sheep. So I'm standing here. I'm the inspector. Oh, you give me two sheep and I'll give you the one that's approved. Guess what happens to the other two sheep? I bet you they get approved once they walk through my door and out the back door. I bet you they're approved. Okay. But um, they, so when he's talking about the buying and selling, that even what was happening is trading was going on. The stock, um, you know, the, uh, uh, what do you call the market in California with the cattle? It's not, it's stock, but um, I remember growing up, we'd always get on, in where we grew up in central Minnesota, they would always, with the news, give the, give the market figures for the pigs. Okay, what were pigs going for at this time of the day? What were, you know, the different cattle going for? Well, that made sense because that was happening in the Midwest. That was happening in Jerusalem. 
They were exchanging animals. They were bartering the animals that they were bringing. So it's not just that the animals of the priest, some of you would be bringing them in and you would be selling off your animals to the people who were trying to keep up enough with enough animals to sell to other people. So you had regular, regular you know, exchange system going on in this marketplace. And you think about it, wow, okay. There's a lot of activity taking place in this temple area outside it, the court of the Gentiles. So you've got to stop and think, okay, if I'm coming, and this is my set area right here. The auditorium is my set area. And over here we got somebody calling out the prices that they're offering to buy some more lambs. And they're yelling out dickering prices, trying to get some of you to come over and sell your lambs to them that they can turn around and sell. And then you got somebody over here yelling about the cheaper price of the lambs and somebody with the different animals. Plus you got the animals. And, and I, I'm not one of these people that's real, real big on animals because animals do things. Okay. When they walk, they do things. They buy products. That's that's the way I put it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I I I like that we have a donkey in our reenactment, but the donkey does things. Okay. And so those things do they add other senses? Trigger? Do they trigger other senses? Okay. So you're trying to worship here, and you're smelling the animals. You're trying to worship here, and you're hearing all this going on. You're trying to focus in prayer, and you kneel down, and you go, oh, man. Okay? That's the reality of what was happening. Okay? If you were there, what would you do? How meditative could you be? I mean, some of you are really good this way. Some of you, you can focus in on prayer, and there's all kinds of activity going on around you. The kids could be biting, screaming, carrying on from the chandelier, and you're going to be really, really praying. Some of us are ADD. Yeah, anything that happens around us, we got to get into it. It pulls our attention. And you know, any, some of us, if you know, we're here in worship, and if somebody over there gets up and walks out, where does your eyes go? Okay. Most of you, it doesn't happen to. Most of you are enamored with the guy up here walking. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> is it true that when somebody moves, it pulls your attention? Okay, now, now nobody, this, everybody's this morning going to go like this. Okay. okay, but those things happen. And so you, you try to think, I'm going to be in a worshipful mood. This is what I'm called to be. I'm a Gentile. I'm here to worship, and I can't. Well, what do you do? You're a Gentile. You have no say in this. You're a Gentile. You, you don't have a vote. You can't contact your congressman. Even if that would help, you couldn't do anything. So you just, after a while, what do you do as a Gentile? You give up. What would you do? Would you even show up? No. Ah, most of them won't even bother. And the Jews are so enamored with this system, what are they thinking about the Gentiles? Yeah, they don't care about them, number one. So number one, they don't have any concern about them. Number two, they aren't showing up anyway, so yeah. You know, so why bother? And this is for our convenience. So the whole thing just destroyed the meditative nature. And, um, and by the way, okay, by the way, you have to remember, did the Old Testament indicate the Jews were supposed to reach out to the world? Yes, it did. Okay, we have the phrase, the, the passage, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's, a, that's an Old Testament quote. Whosoever means anybody. Okay, did God ever tell the Jews to be concerned? Did he ever send missionaries to the world? Outside of Judea, the Jews? Who's the most famous that went for a swim? 
Okay, Jonah. Okay, so God did that. And so here they, they aren't. Jesus, seeing this, becomes physically assertive. So you imagine this. You imagine Jesus' emotions at this moment. Think, he's, think now he's angry? Justifiably angry? I get that impression. I, because anger is not a sin. Okay? Be angry, it says in Ephesians, but sin not. Okay, doesn't say anger is a sin. Unjustified or uncontrolled anger is wrong. But being angry over the proper things are, is appropriate. Jesus was angry to the point that he's becoming physically assertive. Now, you're the people who are very money-oriented. Picture in your mind, well, let me, let me rephrase this. Okay, You're walking down the street. It's a busy street. You don't kind of notice anything, but when you hear that coin fall, that's, that sound, what do you do? You look. Do you think there was a lot of coins falling when he's overturning the tables? Do you think a lot of people are starting to panic that there goes money? And others are going, there goes money. Yeah. So it's, he creates chaos and mayhem within this system. And so he went so far that according to Mark, the, uh, the phrase is where he positions himself. And uh, we pointed it out. It says that he would not suffer that any should carry any vessel through the temple. So he parks himself at one of the doors. And he doesn't allow the traffic to come back. Why, why would he have to bother? Why would he have to bother? If he chased them all out, surely they wouldn't come back. It's their livelihood, okay? If you chase the beggars away, you know, from the, from the entry of a motel, what's going to probably happen in a few hours? They'll be back, okay? You chase the red light people away from, get away, get away. What will those people of the night end up doing later on? They're going to come back. Okay, so he chased them out. They're going to come back. Oh, by the way, didn't he chase them out another occasion? And what did they do? They came back. They reasserted themselves. So here you have Jesus standing there. He's going to try to protect the temple. And the question is, why doesn't anybody stop him? Have you ever wondered in this whole scene? This just didn't happen in 10 seconds. This This had to play out over a matter of minutes. Why do you think nobody stopped Jesus? What's that? Well, it wasn't God's time for them to take him away. But it doesn't seem like we hear of, and maybe they did, but we hear of nobody's challenging. Why was there... Yeah, do you think being right makes a difference? Do you think that even though they, you know, it was their livelihood, do you think there was any kind of shame in this? Oh, and by the way, 24 hours before this, they have been cheering him and saying he is the king. Does he, by nature of the public acclaim of yesterday, does he have influence and some authority? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. So it's, it's all playing in. And so, the, in fact, what does it keep on saying? The Pharisees, they want to get rid of him, but because of the crowds, they hesitate. So Jesus has some sway here. He causes all these people to leave, and then he makes comments. Now, interesting his comments. Mark is the most elaborate in what he says, the most detailed, and he basically makes reference to an Old Testament passage that some of you will have. It's in your margins from Isaiah 56, 7. But he talks about my house. Now, just breaking down the phrase, okay? When he's making comments, Okay, as it is written type of a concept, he is again referring to Old Testament prophecy. He's tying in what he's doing with scripture. I'm fulfilling the Bible. He refers to the temple as my house in quoting from the Old Testament, which is asserting divine authority, divine claim. You have made my father's house. 
Okay, I'm the son, I'm the heir. He's claiming divinity. He says that this was for all nations. This was my father's house for all nations, to be a house of prayer for all nations. He's pointing out that we have a universal plan. We want to go out and reach everyone, not just the Jews. When he makes the comment, this house of prayer, he is indicating that prayer is to be a vital part of public worship. It is to be an important part of the personal worship of those who come to the worship center. And so he makes a comment about you have made it a den of thieves. We said already the possibility is they stole from the people by corruption, by graft, by exorbitant prices. I think there's another factor here. I think they stole from the people. The den of thieves is also referring you have taken away what else? Worship. You have stolen from other people their opportunity to worship, okay, and to learn, okay? Because, by the way, just, it's not only prayer that would be done there by the Gentiles, but instruction. Um, all the way around the outside of that, of that temple area where we showed you two boxes, they called them Solomon's Porches. And speakers, teachers were to be there giving instruction, giving lessons. And so, you, how would you listen to the lesson if somebody was over in the corner being a huckster. It would distract for most of us. And so this, this idea of robbing, you've robbed the spiritual opportunities of the Gentiles. So Jesus is upset. He's frustrated with the whole thing. And that day, he does other ministry. Okay, this is important. Again, this is something that most of you knew. I didn't, I didn't catch a couple of these, these nuances. Okay, he keeps the temple for a period of time, how long that is in verse 16, that he guards the door. I don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows. But he guards the door to keep things at bay for a while. Matthew talks about, our Luke says, he taught in the temple. So while he's guarding, he's doing some teaching, both Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Monday is included in Matthew's comments that he's doing some teaching. Matthew says this. Matthew says, the blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. I didn't realize that before. I didn't realize that he was doing miracles in the temple that day. Which, by the way, if the day before they were excited for what he had done, would this put an exclamation point? If you were the common people, okay, if you were the normal people, which you guys are, but if you were living back there, wouldn't you be excited that he broke up the, the monopoly system? Okay, wouldn't you be excited that he was healing people? I mean, this is all going on at the same time. So he has this, he has more ministry that day that takes him all day. It's, it's a busy day. It's a hectic day of ministering to people, taking care of the temple, guarding the temple. And so the Pharisees comment and make this comment. This is from his enemies. They say the wonderful things that he does or is doing. Okay, and they refer to what he is doing as wonderful things that the crowds are being enamored by. And so Jesus is busy that day, and it says in Matthew that the children at, at this time in the temple, the children are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. So some are, going, uh, are following up on Monday with what happened on Sunday. They're cheering, and it's in particular the children that are doing this, that they're singing, they're dancing, they're carrying on that Jesus is the Messiah. So there is more acclamations going on on Monday, which makes perfect sense. He's cleansed the temple. He's focused on worship. He's healing people. He's teaching God's word, and people are getting excited about it. This is Monday. Now, there's a group of people who aren't excited about this. 
Okay, go back to your scene. Who wouldn't have liked all this? Okay, anybody who, had the power, who was involved with the power system. I mean, does that ever happen in our modern day? That people who get ousted from power get upset? Okay, so that's what's happening here. That's caused the Jewish leaders to get more upset. It's one thing to be upset over popularity. But when you hit people, you know, not just their popularity, what is the thing that people really react over? The money. That's an age-old thing. Follow the... Yeah, when you hit people in the pocketbook, that makes them move. And so the Pharisees have just, Sadducees have just been kicked in the pocketbook. And they're going to respond. They're going to be extremely angry. To the point that it's said once more, they, they are going to seek to destroy him. Now what's interesting is when it makes that comment, look at verse 18. The scribes, the chief priests. These are, these are peoples that normally they don't work together. Let's rephrase that. The Democrats and the Republicans are united that would be a shock, wouldn't it? Okay, that's about the sense of what it is. These different groups are uniting. They are polar opposite political parties in the, in the Sanhedrin. They are uniting. The common unity factor is they both hate Jesus. A common enemy makes us friends. And so they, uh, they unite their forces, and they've got to do something. And they can't wait anymore. Again, we made this comment that, there would be, that uh, we said this last week. It was in the mind of the Jewish leaders to get rid of Jesus after, do you remember? After Passover. By what he does on Monday, is he forcing their hand? Yes. Yes, he's moving there. They have a timetable. Their timetable doesn't fit prophecy. Jesus manipulates the circumstances to move them to move up their timetable. And so they get the united forces. And when do they start coming after Jesus? On Tuesday. On Tuesday, it happens. Now they're going to start attacking. They're going to try tripping him up. They're going to try to get him to say something that they can accuse him of treason. And so Tuesday is when they come. And it's not just one of these political groups. It's several political groups. And they're asking questions that they don't even believe in. They don't even believe in the resurrection. But the Sadducees are coming and going to ask, whose wife will this person be? But they don't believe in it. But they're motivated by hatred for Jesus. And so it's all, you know, their popularity was at challenge. Now their pocketbooks are challenged. And so Jesus is becoming a, uh, a, a cursed leader. Hey, just, just for fun, let's contrast the Jewish leaders and Jesus. Okay, if you were living back here, you would understand this a little bit better. So us being removed, let's just do a little bit of contrast. The Jews versus the Jesus, that leadership. They, did they work within the specifics of the law by... By the proper approved sacrifice and coins? The answer is yes. Okay, by, by specifics, by the rules, were they doing what was, what was legal? Yes, yes they were. It's got to be an approved animal, it's got to be approved coins. Okay, Jesus works within the spirit of the law. They work within the letter of the law. There's a contrast. Something else that they do. They deal with the crowds on a commercial basis. We will minister to you commercially by providing the appropriate animals. That will help you out economically because you don't have to travel so far with the animals so far. And so they spin it as being, we're helping you out commercially. But I'm going to charge you multiple prices. But I'm helping you out. And for the benefit of all my labors, you have to pay me you know, 10 times the, the normal price. But I'm helping you out. So they were very focused on helping people out commercially. Jesus is focused on helping people out 
Spiritually. Okay, that's a simple one. Okay, he's going to help the crowds out spiritually. Um, they were committed to destroy Jesus. That's where their commitment comes. Okay, we understand this is bad. Okay, that they are, they're, going to, they're going to be so committed. They are so committed to destroying Jesus, they're, they're going to unite forces that normally are not in union. Okay, but they're united to destroy Jesus. And so they're committed. Jesus is committed to saving them. Isn't that the irony? They are committed to wiping him out. He's committed to saving the Jewish people. The very people that they claim to serve. Now, they, in their commitment, they hesitate. They are motivated by fear. It says that they are unable to do anything because of all the pressure that they have. Contrast Jesus to a fear of the crowds that paralyzes them. That they don't want to follow through with what, they're supposed, what, they, what they determine they're going to do. I want to do this. We're going to do this. But I'm afraid if I do it. So I do nothing. Jesus. Does he see something that he doesn't like? Yes. How does he respond? Is he fearful? Is Jesus fearful? Is he bold? Oh man. Oh man. He is so bold because it's right. I'm going to be bold because this is the right thing to do. And we get no indication there's a whole army of people helping him. He's just doing it because it's appropriate to do. There's lots of things we can keep on talking about, but here's what it is. It's the end of the day. Jesus is done. Busy day ministering to people. He leaves. He will come back on Tuesday. But as he, as he leaves, let's just finish up with these thoughts. Okay, and we'll pick up what happens when he comes the next morning, next week. Jesus openly opposed religious corruption. Okay, even though, now this is interesting, this is interesting. Even though this corruption is, and you can define it this way, it is firmly entrenched in society. How long has it been going on? Decades? Okay, if something goes on for decades, what do we, over time, what do we end up doing? It becomes normal. It becomes the new normal, and we kind of accept it. That it's just part of our culture. Jesus is going to oppose that which is corrupt, even though it's firmly entrenched. Even though, now think this through, it didn't make a long-term difference the last time he did it. Is that a truth? Is that a fact? Did he, the last time he cleansed the temple, did he stop the corruption in the temple system permanently? No, no. But he could have easily said, and you can understand this, well, I tried and it didn't work, so why why bother? Okay, Jesus doesn't. He opposes it a second time and makes his statement. Even when he knew the prophecies predicted worst times for Jerusalem because of their rejection, he's going to do this. He's going to oppose it. He knows that there's, there's trouble for Jerusalem. He knows that they're going to be judged, but I'm still going to try to help them to see the truth. I, I'm, I'm going to try to prevent them from making things worse. And I know the prophecies predict they're going to be damned. But I want to warn them. I want to see them make some changes. So he put a great priority, not only upon opposing corruption, but a great priority upon prayer and worship. We understand that. That doesn't need to be stated any further than what's already been stated, that that was part of his concern. He has a deep concern about people, all people, having the opportunity to worship as God intended. All people. To the point that he's trying to protect the atmosphere of worship for them. So that they can worship. And try to decrease the disruption and disturbance. Now again, does he have to do that by creating, doing something disruptive? 
Yeah, but he's trying to bring, you know, bring some peace to the situation. He did not become discouraged or paralyzed by the rise in power of the corrupt individuals. Okay, do you ever feel this way? Do you ever feel discouraged by the powers that be that are corrupt? I mean, does it ever strike you that says, why bother? Why even try? The system is so tainted, it'll never change. Okay, we feel that way, but he doesn't. Okay, we should still seek to do what is right. Jesus continued to do good works of kindness, healing the people, ministering the people, even during busy and difficult times of confrontation. Okay, he's got challenges here, it's busy, he's trying to keep out the corruption out of the temple, but he's still healing people. He still has time to minister to the lame, the blind, the poor that are there in the temple. And we should too. There's a lot of different practical teachings that go on. The teaching that is the most critical at this point is what he does and brings in with the fig tree. We don't have time. We'll pick it up next week. About when he goes, comes the next day, he gives the lessons on the fig tree that illustrate what's going on in Jerusalem. We'll pick